It's great to have you with us from wherever you're tuning in from. For more information about Elevate Church or to contact us, head to our website elevatechurch.me and take us wherever you go by downloading our Elevate Church AU app. We hope this message inspires and helps you to take your next steps in your journey. Well, good morning. Good to see you all this morning. Uh, also, a special shout out to our extended Elevate family listening, joining us via podcast around the world. Uh, just in case you missed it, podcast people, uh, we also have a weekly online experience and uh, encourage you to join that. Jump on YouTube, search for Elevate Church Perth, and you'll get to see just how good looking we are in the flesh when you see us on the screen there. We actually uh, launched this series two weeks ago, How Not To Be your own worst enemy. And I just wonder when we announced this and, and some of you saw the title, maybe we're tempted to kind of switch off because you might've thought that's a pretty absurd thing to be teaching on. Like who would ever be their own worst enemy? I mean, leave that to other people, plenty of uh, volunteers, I'm sure, but as if any of us would ever be our own worst enemy. I mean, come on now. And yet I reminded two weeks ago, I reminded and, and, and I think maybe we need to be reminded that you've seen people actually do this. You've watched people burn down parts of their lives, friends, family members, colleagues. You, you've seen it happen, burn down their finances, torch their marriage, uh, do, uh, uh, burn down their health, uh, relationships, family. And... and when you've uh, seen that, not just at the end of the, the process, but you know, some of us get a front row seat to actually see that thing as it unfolds. Maybe you've thought to yourself, why are you doing that? You see the way they're spending money. You see the way they're treating their spouse. You see the way they're, they're, they're not looking after their health. Why are you doing that? Well, if you've ever watched that, if you've ever seen somebody becoming their own worst enemy and wondered why they're doing that, let me break it down for you. It's pretty simple. It's a three-step process. And it goes like this. They gave themselves bad advice. That was the beginning. They then listened to that bad advice, step two. And then, which is also important, acted on that bad advice. Gave it, listened to it, and acted on it. And in the process, became their own worst enemy. But real talk, you've done it as well, as have I. And the reason I know you've done this is because you were involved in all of your bad decisions. You were at the table. You were at the meeting. You gave yourself bad advice. You listened to that bad advice and you acted on that bad advice. And in doing that, and when we've done that, we become our own worst enemy. That said... As much as we're talking about how not to be your own worst enemy, it's also important to understand that when we are our own worst enemy, it's not just us that's impacted. That when we torch significant aspects of our lives, it's almost always carries over to the lives of those around us. And so it's vital to not be our own worst enemy for our future. It's also vital to not be our own worst enemy for the future and the impact on those around us. And in fact, not only will we affect other people, we'll actually limit the opportunity to influence other people. Because while you're busy burning your life down, other people are watching and thinking to themselves, 
I'm not going to listen to a word you say. I don't want that result in my life. So we end up painting ourselves into a corner with little or no influence. In the weeks, three weeks that we've been teaching this, week one, we talked about pay attention to the tension that God's hardwired into our internal operating system, a thing called a conscience. And, and that as that conscience is shaped and developed and starts to become increasingly in tune with God's will and God's, and God's voice, God's ways, that when we come up against an opportunity or a situation that we may in following through on that become our own worst enemy, there's this kind of, uh, 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 no, 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 that, that, that something in us wants to rip the handbrake on and it's critical when we're in that space before we've done the thing to pay attention to that tension. Now, last week, uh, Steve Hall, one-time guest speaker, Steve Hall uh, taught a message, uh, pay attention to your narrative, that the inner dialogue that we have, and it's a dialogue that's, that's been cultivated over years and sometimes generations. It's a dialogue that could have been passed down from our parents. It's a dialogue that could have been transferred onto us by our teachers. It's a dialogue that could be rolling around in our heads because of our own, own insecurities. The narrative has an astonishing impact on the outcome in our life. So we've got to pay attention. Is the narrative the same story that God speaks over us and speaks about us? And today I want to talk about the importance of paying attention to wise voices. It was English psychologist Peter Wasson coined the phrase, and many of you would be familiar with the phrase, confirmation bias. This phrase confirmation bias essentially uh, refers to the tendency that many people have to selectively gather and selectively retain information. That many people have a tendency to uh, only listen to people who look like them, sound like them, grew up like them. And if we do that, if we, if we lean into a confirmation bias, what we ultimately find ourselves is we, are, we find ourselves living life inside a bubble. And inside that bubble, life actually gets smaller, not larger. Now we have this uh, thing that, I don't know, maybe you've heard of, uh, social media, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. Let me, let me tell you a little fun fact. When you like a post, or watch something on YouTube, or share a post, or uh, create content and push it out for yourself. There's this thing called artificial intelligence working in the background on an algorithm. And that algorithm is designed, because they want to keep you in their ecosystem, designed to send you more of the same content that you're already engaged with. And so you will see over time, and you look at your friend's scroll and you think, I never see those articles pop up. Yeah, it's because the algorithm's feeding their confirmation bias and all the while it's feeding our confirmation bias. And once again, the same risk is there that we end up living in this social media bubble only listening to people who look like us, speak like us, think like us. And life inside the bubble gets smaller and smaller. So I want to take you to a point in history where confirmation bias did not serve a leader well. If you've got uh, your Bible app, you can uh, open it up. We'll, alternatively, we'll be putting 
this on the screen uh, as we go. And I'm going to cover a lot of ground today, okay? This is going like, to be like Bible Banquet 101. This is going to be like a nine-course degustation menu, all right? So buckle up, lots of Bible, and uh, we'll be on the screen. That's fine. Um, I'm going to take you to this uh, slice in history recorded in 1 Kings chapter 11. Now, this, this book, Kings, as the name suggests, focused on the kings of Israel. And just prior to where I want to drop us in today, the backstory is that uh, Saul became the first ever king of Israel. And I spoke about him two weeks ago. And he then, after about 40 years, his son-in-law David took over, David, the David and Goliath, David. And he was the second king of Israel for about 40 years. And then David's son Solomon, in this natural succession plan, uh, took over from David, when David uh, popped his clogs, uh, Solomon took over as the third king of Israel. And then just around the time that I'm going to drop us in to this story, Solomon's still alive and he's had a son. Well, he's had a lot. But this is the first one, is this guy named Rehoboam. Now, it's very important to remember, it's not a common name in this part of the world at the moment. Maybe we should bring it back. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and Solomon's firstborn son, because he was Solomon's firstborn son, he was next in line, okay? Just the natural succession of uh, what it meant to be a king. Now, just before we drop us into the story, there's an important thing to understand about what was going on in history. Solomon, uh, by this stage, he had become, uh, well, it's, it's, it's recorded as probably the wealthiest person to have ever lived in the history of humanity, okay? So super rich guy and uh, super powerful. And at this point in history, he was building so many uh, uh, monuments to himself and temples to gods all around the, the, the known world, and I'll come back to that, that he actually employed pretty much the entire male labor force of the known world. He had about 150,000 stone cutters and stone carriers working for him, just building temples and monuments, okay? The important thing to understand about that was not just the scale of his uh, workforce, but also the fact that he didn't treat them like servants in his kingdom, but rather he treated them like slaves, like indentured labor. Okay, so that's the backstory. You following so far? Yeah. All right, I know you're smart, I get it. You've told me before. Verse 28, Jeroboam. Now, not Rehoboam, Solomon's son's name's Rehoboam, this guy's name's Jeroboam. The story would be a lot simpler if it was just Bill and Fred, but it's not, okay? It's Rehoboam and Jeroboam. So we're not up to Rehoboam yet. We're gonna insert ourselves in history learning about Jeroboam. Jeroboam, who was one of this workforce uh, working on Solomon's behalf, stood out during the construction as strong and able. And when Solomon observed what a good worker he was, he put the young man in charge of the entire workforce of the tribe of Joseph. So there's this massive building projects going on all around the known world. And in this instance, Jeroboam, come out of nowhere, just demonstrated his capacity as a worker, got promoted to essentially a cabinet position, essentially like the, the minister for construction and infrastructure, like super important in that point in history because Solomon was all about the building projects, okay? One day, Jeroboam, the newly appointed minister for construction and infrastructure, was walking down the road out of Jerusalem 
and Ahijah, the prophet of Shiloh, wearing a brand new cloak, met him. Now, just so you know, two things about prophets. Number one, a prophet is someone that speaks on God's behalf, okay? That's, that's what a prophet does. Secondly, when, when a prophet approaches you, it's either gonna be very good news or a very big warning, okay? God doesn't kind of waste prophets on just like, how's the weather? So what's gonna happen? Which is it gonna be? And the two of them were alone on that remote stretch of road. Nahijah took off the new cloak that he was wearing and ripped it into 12 pieces. That might seem a little bit insane, but prophets do some loopy stuff. So it'd be like, yeah, he's ripping his cloak. It's fine. That makes sense. Then he said to Jeroboam, take 10 of these pieces for yourself. This is by order of the God of Israel. This is God speaking. Now see what I'm doing. I'm ripping the kingdom out of Solomon's hands and giving you the 10 tribes. So there was 12 tribes. And this prophet speaking on God's behalf is saying that God's taking 10 of them and it's, and it's not going to stay in Solomon's uh, kingdom. I'm actually gonna give them to you. He's like, he's, like just a, he's a cabinet member. Used to be a stonecutter. Solomon had been appointed by God. It was Saul, then David, then Solomon. And all of a sudden, God says, uh, I'm just actually gonna take this away from him. And the reason was, is because at this point in history, Solomon had gotten in the habit in order to initiate peace treaties with neighboring kingdoms. He'd gotten in the habit of marrying the daughters of these neighboring uh, kings. He, he married so many women that he stopped calling them by name because he couldn't remember all their names and just simply set up a numbering system. He's sometimes referred to as the wisest person that ever lived. Doesn't sound like it to me, anyway. And what Solomon did in initiating these peace treaties and marrying the daughters is he then committed to build some of the temples in the region to the gods of these other kings. And God said, uh-uh, that's not what I asked of you as the king of Israel. And because you've disobeyed me, and because instead of worshiping the one true God, you've decided you're gonna worship all the gods to make everybody happy, I'm actually gonna take away from you the very thing that caused you to be king in the first place. And then the prophet continued, but again, speaking on God's behalf. So this is God still. I won't take the whole kingdom away from him, I'll stick with him through his lifetime, not because of what he did, but because I'm gonna honor my servant David, whom I chose and who did follow my directions and obey my orders. See, God honors those who honor him. But after that, I'll remove the kingdom from his son's control and give you 10 tribes. Now, it probably comes as no surprise that Jeroboam started telling people this story. Guys, you're never gonna believe what happened to me this morning, man. Walking along the road, just another day, guy comes up to me, turns out he's a prophet, nice new cloak. You know what he does? Rips it into 12 pieces. What? He did? Yeah, what did he do that for? <laughs> well, let me tell you that. He is says to me, he says, but it's not me, this is God speaking. Uh, God, I'm gonna give you 10 tribes. These 10 pieces represent 10 tribes and I'm gonna take them away from King Solomon. And his mate's like, huh, what? Well, then, then his mates couldn't wait to tell the story to the next person. So they go out. Now, eventually this story gets to Solomon. 
But by that stage, as stories tend to happen, it didn't kind of come out accurately. And the story that Solomon heard is that this newly appointed minister for construction and infrastructure, Jeroboam, thinks he's going to be the next king. So what does any uh, king do in that situation? Well, he puts a bounty out on Jeroboam's head and says, that's fine. He thinks he's going to be the king. We'll just kill him. Problem solved. Solomon ordered the assassination of Jeroboam, but Jeroboam got away to Egypt and found asylum there with King Shishak. He, Jeroboam, remained there in exile until Solomon died. So, until Solomon died, insert, fact, Solomon just died. Rehoboam, not Jeroboam, Rehoboam, Solomon's son, was the natural Next in line successor. So, story continues. Rehoboam traveled to Shechem where all Israel had gathered to inaugurate him as king. It was a done deal. Jeroboam had been in Egypt where he'd been taken asylum with king, from King Solomon. When he got the report of Solomon's death, he came back. In other words, it's safe to go back to my homeland now. Cool. Rehoboam assembled Jeroboam and all the people. And they said, the people that is, said to the new king, Your father made life hard for us, worked our fingers to the bone. Give us a break, lighten up on us, and we'll willingly serve you. I mean, what an incredible promise. I mean, if you're in leadership, you're a king, you're a manager, hey, you're a parent, and uh, the people that you're leading come to you and say, you know what? I will willingly serve you. You think, this is a good day. Who could want for more? And in this case, that was, their, that was their, their commitment. We will willingly serve you. We just ask for one simple change. Now that there's a new king on the throne, can you just give us a break and lighten up? And not, 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 we'll still keep working. But just can you just make, just, just make things a little bit easier and we'll willingly serve you. It sounds like a pretty good deal to me. And the new king Rehoboam immediately made two very wise decisions. The first one, he said to them, give me three days to think it over and then come back. In other words, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, I'm just new at this, all right? It's like day one. Crown doesn't even quite fit, just needs a little bit of adjusting, the crown shop. But uh, all right, I, I hear you. I get what you're asking. Just look, I'm not sure. I, I, I don't know what I'm going to decide. And it's a pretty big decision because this affects all the people. So look, just give me a few days to think about it and I'll get back to you. That was a super wise decision. If you're in leadership, if you're in management, those of you who are parents, there's going to be certain decisions where the actual magnitude of that decision the scale of the decision based on the, the ultimate consequences. They matter so much that it, that it might be the best thing for you to initially to do is to say, I'm not ready to make a decision yet. I need to gather a little bit more intelligence. I need to, to amass a few more facts. I need to get a, a few more perspectives because I don't feel ready or qualified yet to make that decision. Now, sidebar, you can't wait forever You will almost never have 100% of the information you need to make a decision. So you need to have sort of a threshold. 
Because, because if you wait and wait and wait, you may fall into what's being referred to as analysis paralysis and you end up never making a decision and the opportunity passes you by. But it's very rare that you'll have 100%, but don't go with 0%. If you're like below the threshold and significantly below the threshold, like I, my threshold, I come in at about 70%. If I've got about 70%, then I, I, I don't wait for 100 but, but I don't like to make a decision if I'm, if I'm right around 20% of what I think I would need to make a, a wise decision. And so that's when I'll start doing what Rehoboam also did, the second wise decision. King Rehoboam talked it over with the elders who had, uh, who had advised his father when he was alive. What's your counsel? How do you suggest I answer the people. Two very wise decisions. I'm not ready to make a decision and I'm gonna go get some perspective from people who may be able to add some value to me as the new king in this decision-making process. And they were older. That's a clue. It's not the only clue, but it's a clue. But it is one of the things that, 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 that has generated a cliche, and I'm on record. Some of you have heard me say this before, and you're about to roll your eyes back in your head, or oh, here he goes again. A cliche, there's a cliche, there's a few, but one cliche that I do not like, because I do not think it's true, is the cliche experience is the best teacher. And here's a couple of reasons why I don't like this cliche and don't think it's true. And that's because if this was true, then any one of us, having stuffed something up once, we'd never make that same mistake again because we now have experience. And yet, some of us have a lot of experience. Some of us have repeated experience. Some of us have ongoing experience. Some of you are the most experienced people you know in some really dumb stuff. It starts to work, I will acknowledge this, if you learn something from the experience and course correct as a consequence, then in that case, yeah, that experience will have served you well, but only if you learn something from it. And the other reason I don't like, well, I've actually got a few, but second reason I don't like this is you don't have to pay for your own education all the time. You can learn from other people's experiences. You and I can learn from other people's mistakes. Other people can have paid the price and became their worst enemy. And you with, and I, with a, with a front row seat, can actually say their experience has become my best teacher because I've watched their experience and I've learned from what they did wrong and decided that I wouldn't do that. And let me, let me tell you the third reason I don't like this. I've got more than three, but let me add a bonus one in. It's not in my notes. Being older, and I'm not gonna put a number on what I consider to be older, although I can now tell you some mornings I wake up and crawl out of bed and wonder if something's not gonna be working today. But, um, uh, but uh, you can be older and not wiser. That time on this planet doesn't automatically correlate with having more wisdom. It can, 
but only if you, as you've gone through life, have grown in wisdom and learnt and learnt and learnt. Now, so, Rehoboam goes to the old wise former advisors of his father and asked them, what do you think I should do? And they said, <laughs> like, duh. If you'll be a servant to this people, be considerate of their needs and respond with compassion, work things out with them, here's what you're gonna get in return. They'll end up doing anything for you. I mean, who wouldn't want that? You're a new king. You're gonna have a whole nation of people who are gonna be willing to do anything. And they're just asking one thing, just back it off a little. Treat us like servants and not slaves. But here's the thing. These, these guys, they were guys, presumably. It's the cultural thing back then. Uh, this superpower wasn't simply that they were older. In fact, their superpower was the fact that they had nothing to lose and nothing to gain by telling Rehoboam the truth. That they had no reason to only tell him what he wanted to hear. And so they were, they were actually, they, that gave them the freedom to speak truth to power. They didn't work for him. They worked for his old man. They were now retired. That was their superpower, that they could actually give information to the new king unfiltered. Which is pretty good because in organizations, information doesn't tend to flow upward without filtering in the process. It just doesn't because the people that work for you or serve you can feel like they've got something to lose or can be motivated by having something to gain by telling you something that's other than the 100% naked truth. But these guys didn't have that. Well, <clears throat> King Rehoboam's next decision steered him in the direction of becoming his own worst enemy. His confirmation bias kicked in and he retreated into the bubble that he'd grown up in. And this is what happened. But he rejected the counsel of the elders and asked the young men he'd grown up with who were now currying his favor, motivation. What do you think? You with no experience? <laughs> what should I say to these people who are saying, give us a break from your father's harsh ways, lighten up on us? And the young Turks he'd grown up with said, these people who complain your father was too hard on us, lighten up. Well, tell them this. My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. Now, I don't have time to get into the full explanation of that, but the metaphor there is saying, you thought my dad was a big deal? My finger is bigger than his waist. I'm a bigger deal. And here's how I'm gonna demonstrate that I'm a bigger deal than my father was. If you think life under my father was hard, you ain't seen the half of it. My father thrashed you with whips and I'll beat you with bloody chains. This is, now, again, at this stage, this is just advice. Take it or leave it. You're the king. But instead of asking what's the wise thing to do, the new king asked, what do I wanna do? And what the new king didn't realize is prisons are full of people who only did what they wanted to do. Kingdoms are not. So he decided to reject the advice of the wiser elder people. And he listened to the young guys. Now, I encourage you to keep reading this for yourself. But a spoiler, <laughs> it ended up about how you'd expect. 
things went about how you probably think at this point in the history are like, I can't believe if Rehoboam's gonna listen to those young guys, I can't believe things went well for him. Good, yes. Correct. They went exactly how God said they would. If you don't listen to me, I'm gonna take things from you and I'm gonna give them to the one who is listening to me. So Rehoboam had this filter. He got two sets of advice and, he, and they conflicted. So he had to decide which one he was gonna listen to. He had to filter between which one he was gonna accept and act on and which one he was gonna reject and act on. And you and I, we have to develop that skill as well. Because as you know, there is a lot of incoming noise, more than ever in history. A lot of incoming noise. It's coming via media. It's coming via social media. And by the way, it still gets delivered the old fashioned way with people around you telling you what they think you should do, even if you don't ask. You know what I think you should do is, you know what I think you're doing wrong is, listen, if I were you, well, you're not me. Anyway, you get it. So not only is it impractical to take on all of the advice that comes our way, it's actually not wise. There actually needs to be a filter, a filter that says, yeah, actually, this is what I'm gonna listen to and act on. And this is what I'm actually gonna reject and just like bad, bad advice. And I have a very simple filter. I've taught on it before and I'm gonna tell you what it is now. And I'm gonna tell you what it is. And you're gonna think, they pay you to say this stuff? Like, really? Yeah, they do. And this, is, this, is, this advice doesn't seem that valuable, but it is. Take it from me. It's very simple, three words. The filter that I use and recommend for who and what to listen to and who and what to reject is this. Follow the fruit. Not follow the fruit loops. You've tried it, that didn't work for you. Follow the fruit. In other words, who is the source of the advice and what sort of fruit are they producing in their lives? That's actually what qualifies them for being somebody's perspective that you and I would wanna to listen to. If you wanna improve your marriage, then listen to the voices of people who have the sort of marriage that you want in your own life. If you wanna do a great job raising your kids, then look for, seek out, go to, the sort of people that are producing the sort of fruit with their kids that you might want to produce for your kids. If you wanna be uh, successful in business or in your career or in your area of speciality, then seek out, look for, and listen to people who are producing fruit in that sphere. I know, right? I'm getting paid to tell you this stuff. And you're thinking, that's so obvious. Yeah, I know it's obvious, but it doesn't mean that we do it. And that's the problem. If you've got somebody, you wanna, you've got some financial goals, or maybe you're in debt and you wanna get out of debt, look for people who've de- de- who are demonstrating the fruit. Well, I talked to my uncle, he's bankrupt four times, but you know, I figured he's, no, no, no. And the list goes on 
and on whatever the sphere is, follow not not follow the loudest, not follow the shiniest, not follow the person with the most followers, the so-called influencer, because they might be an influencer, but not always in the direction that God wants you and I to take. But follow the fruit. So here's a little pro tip. When you start following the fruit, the people, looking for them and, and going to them, looking for perspective, like Rehoboam did, but then decided poorly which one to take. When you, when you start doing that, don't go there with your mind made up, okay? Because in that case, you're not going looking for advice, you're going looking for validation, and you'll actually find validation. You will find somebody, when you're about to make, become your own worst enemy, <laughs> you might, it might take seven different people, but you, ah, you, what do you know? What do you know? What do you know? Because you've already made your mind up. You're not looking for a different perspective. You're looking for validation. And unfortunately, that you, you will find it. Someone eventually is gonna think your stupid idea is brilliant. And so you say, and I ask that. On the very rare occasion, people come to me looking for advice. I mean, stupid thing that would be. Uh, Before I answer them, I'd ask them a very simple question. Have you already made up your mind? And if the answer is yes, that's the end of the conversation. Let's talk about the weather. Because... They're not looking for information and advice. They're looking for validation. And I might think that that's the most harebrained thing I've ever heard. And I'm not going to play in that sandbox. It's called enabling people. We really hope you got a lot out of this message. If you live in the Perth area, we'd love you to join us for one of our live experiences. For times and directions, as well as information about our great Elevate Kids and Elevate Youth environments, head to our website, elevatechurch.me. And to partner with us to reach more people by giving financially, head to our website elevatechurch.me and also download our Elevate Church AU app.